Good morning. All right, um, this morning before we get started, uh, I need to have uh, someone serve as a volunteer. And I promise, see this is a problem when you do this in the fourth service. Some of you may have heard what this is. If you've not heard about it, it's really great, okay? It's a really great volunteer opportunity. Uh, and I promise you a few things. I'm not gonna make you stand up. I'm not gonna make you do anything. You're not gonna have to juggle or anything else and kind of come up here on the stage. All you're gonna have to do is you're just in a few minutes gonna have to read one thing. You can stay seated, just read one thing. I promise you this is true, and then that'll be it, and then you'll be done, okay? So volunteer, good, all right, perfect. I'll give you a few minutes, Russell, and um, just to kind of get ready, kind of spiritually prepare yourself, okay? Um, so today, we are starting into a new teaching series that is gonna take us through the beginning of fall, and it's entitled Formed. Something that we have been working on for quite a while, something that we have been excited about for quite a while, and it is going to launch much of what's gonna be taking place over the next year and even beyond in the life of this community, in the life of this church. This is um, gonna be just a great series for us to get on the same page about. And as we introduce it today, I want to introduce it by telling you a little bit about a trip that I took this summer. Uh, I hope that many of you this summer were able to get some time to relax. Uh, we're starting fall programming because it's only like 102 degrees, and so that means that it's fall here in Austin. And so we should get things started. Summer's winding down, and, um, and it was a good time to recharge, and I hope, I hope many of you experienced that. My family got to go to Wales in Great Britain, uh, where my wife is from. It's the first time that we had been there in over two years, and we had a wonderful time. It didn't get above 70 degrees the whole time we were there. Uh, it, was, it was really lovely, and I wanna tell you a little bit about it to illustrate what the point of this series and where we're going. Okay, so there's some slides that are gonna come up. We're gonna bring the first one up here because you gotta know, uh, if we're talking about Wales, you need to know what it is. This is a map of Great Britain, if you've ever been there before. Before. Um, you maybe have traveled to some of these different places. Uh, Britain is kind of an interesting place because it's sort of four nations combined into one nation, okay? And they are still trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, the one nation that many of us know where London is is England. That's in the darker blue there. Scotland is the second. Um, and for anyone like Beth who might be here today, that's not ranking them in importance at all. I'm not saying Scotland's second important or England's first. I'm just saying as we look at the map and make our way west, uh, Scotland you will see next. Wales is the uh, smallest on the main island. It's just there on the west coast. And then uh, you see Ireland and there's a part of Northern Ireland that is the fourth part of what's known as the United Kingdom or Great Britain. So England and Great Britain are not the same thing. Beth is from Great Britain. She is not from England. All right. This kingdom, this island started to be united uh, by the individuals on the next slide. Uh, this is a gentleman named Edward I. He was the king of England. If any of you have seen the movie Bra uh, Braveheart, uh, Edward I was a historical king and he is the English king fighting William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. Uh, he was often known as Edward the Longshanks, and, uh, and this is him. This is the portrait in Westminster Abbey where he is buried. He was king and, uh, kind of in the late 13th century, so kind of like 1270 uh, towards, I think he died in 1306. 
And he had this vision of uniting everyone under the rule of England. And so we see in the movie Braveheart his attempt to conquer the Scots and fighting against William Wallace and Robert the Bruce and trying to take all this over, if you've seen that movie. Um, But what's not in the movie is right before he really works to take over Scotland, he conquered Wales. Okay, they didn't make a movie about that. Apparently, just, they just lost. And so, uh, the, Edward I conquered and took over uh, Wales. And for over 700 years now, the title, the Prince of Wales, which Prince Charles today is known as the Prince of Wales, is held by an English aristocrat, and they became the Prince of Wales because an English army conquered and killed many Welsh people. And it is still a tension that's real today. It's a tension throughout the United Kingdom that they're still trying to work out if you, some of you may remember a few years ago, for example, Scotland had a referendum about whether to separate from Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and it almost passed. And there's a really good chance they're going to vote on that again in a few years. Okay, So this tension is real that's, that's there, and uh, the Welsh feel it as well. It's kind of a real part of their culture. Now, what happened is, is that when this guy, Edward I, conquered... When you conquer a nation, from what I'm told, uh, what you have to do is you have to figure out how to keep control of them, and so you have to take away certain parts of their culture that make them distinct, right? Does that make sense? So, for example, we've seen this in the Bible when the Roman Empire conquered much of uh, the the known world at the time, including Israel and Palestine, uh, where Jesus was born and lived. The Romans were there. The Romans had a very real way of looking at the people they conquered and going, your life as you knew it at some level is over. You're now Roman now. And they had to find a way to create that identity where something changed. The English had to do this with the Welsh. And one of the ways that Edward I let the Welsh know that they were conquered and under a new rule was he outlawed the Welsh language. The language that they had spoken, you think about what the impact it would have today if you were conquered by someone and they said the language that is now commonly spoken is now illegal. It cannot be spoken, it cannot be written, and it cannot be taught. And so that was one of the ways that they continued with this. Welsh, the language of Wales, is the oldest living language in Europe. That is true today. So before English was a language, Welsh was a language, the oldest living language in Europe. And it's nothing like English. It sounds more like Gaelic, if you know that. It's very, very different. This was true, and the Welsh language was almost kind of exterminated in the big cities of Wales, right? In the, and the big cities of Wales are more in the south, and that's where Beth is from. Uh, areas of Cardiff and Swansea, the big port cities. And even in Beth's little village, uh, that's in South Wales, English became the dominant language. In the north, northern Wales, that's much more rural, and those people in these huge mountainsides were much... Um, they were able throughout the centuries to not give up their language. And it's like the English, to conquer them, I think they just sort of looked at the rural regions in North Wales and the mountains, which were very mountainous, very hilly, and they were like, you know what, fine, we're not going to chase eight of you around in the hills to try to make you speak English, just don't come to the cities and you can kind of just do your own thing. And so in Northern Wales, they fiercely held on to their culture and to their language. All of this started to change about 100 years ago. Okay, just stick with me. 100 years ago, uh, the Welsh nation started saying, we're going to start reclaiming some of our identity. And part of what they did is they started reclaiming their language. So today in Wales, all students have to take Welsh. It is mandatory through both elementary school and middle school. So Beth, my wife, she had to take Wales, uh, Welsh until she started high school. 
Also, all signs in Wales have to be written by law in both languages. Any public sign is written in both English and Welsh. And so the signs are like double the size they normally are because it's written in English and then it's written in Welsh. And that is a law. Every single sign has to be written in both languages. This is a law. They're trying to reclaim their identity. In North Wales, they have not had to do this because they never gave it up, their identity. And this is the culture that I married into. It's where we went this summer. And this summer, as I was visiting Beth's family, her parents had a gift for all of us. Her parents said, we are gonna do something we've never done before. We are all gonna leave South Wales and we're gonna all go. And her parents had rented a house for us on the coast in North Wales, this beautiful, rural, amazing area. We were going in, it was Beth's parents, my in-laws, Beth's younger sister, Emma, and her fiance, and then the four of us. So eight of us all together, driving up. A place we'd never been. Beth had never been where we were going. Our girls had obviously never been where we were going. It was stunning. However, the morning we were leaving, my father-in-law, Beth's dad, came to me and said, now Thomas, you know how this is gonna work because you're, we're gonna have to drive in two cars. And Emma and her fiance and, uh, and my in-laws were driving together. And so he said, so the four of you are gonna have to drive together, okay? And Beth drives because in Wales and the UK, if you've been there, they drive on the wrong side of the road, the steering wheel's on the wrong side of the car. It's just like very confusing and stressful when I try to drive. So Beth sort of drives when we're there. So he said, okay, so Beth's gonna drive, the girls are in the back, and that means you're the navigator. And if the cars get separated, you need to know where we're going. At this point, this is like right before we're supposed to leave, he hands me a piece of paper with the address of where we're going. The next slide is exactly word for word what was on the piece of paper he gave me. <laughs> That's the whole thing. And I'm looking at this. Now, I said all you were gonna to have to do was to read something, and you don't have to stand up, but I didn't tell you it wasn't gonna be in English. So what I would love is just kind of first glance, do your best if you can read the address of where we're going. Tamar, it's the what in? Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually much better. So I've, I'm trying to learn these over even over the last few days, and that is much closer than where I started. So well done, very, very well done. A couple things you need to know about Welsh, and again, it's older than English, okay? They have a right to do this how they want. It's before we were speaking our language, so they get a claim on this. Uh, the Ys uh, sound like long E's, okay? So the first line is Timaur. Timaur is the house we were going to. That was the address. There was no number because this is such a rural place that on the road we were going, there were only two houses. And the translation of Timaur is big house, okay? <laughs> so T is house, Maur is big. The other house was Tibach, which is the little house on the road, and that was the stable where we didn't stay in the stable. So we were in like the one inhabited house on this road. The road's name is Istedfa. Uh, DDs are pronounced as uh, the, and Fs sound like Vs. So Istedva, and then it's in the town of Gwynedd. Gwynedd, that's the county where we were going. So, you did a better job than me. I was the, now the navigator to a place that doesn't speak English primarily, and I can't pronounce the place we're going, so I start to panic. 
And then I think, okay, maybe there's something close by that I could recognize. Uh, is there a town or is there a market? Is there something like on signs if we get lost that maybe would be easier and more approachable? And this on the map was the town nearby that could help direct me. This is a real place that we were like five minutes from, okay? It is one of the longest town names in the world. The other thing you need to know, among many things about the Welsh language, is that double L's are very common, just like double D's, and sometimes can actually serve as vowels. Don't ask me, they were speaking it before us, it's just how it works, okay? So this isn't a word jumble, this is the actual name. And the way you pronounce a double L, which I know all of you wanna know how to do, is it's like a blowing sound. You have to, and it's, it's a blowing sound kind of in your back molars, okay? And I know that sounds weird. If you're gonna try this, be careful of the people in front of you, okay? <laughs> but this is what it sounds like. Okay, so I practiced this for like four, this was my sermon prep last night, was trying to learn this word, and this is it. Do you, do you want to try it? No, okay, all right, here we go. I can't look at it, because I like actually memorized it by, and if I look at it, it messes me up, all right. Slanvire posgwingeth gothgereth gwindrobo slantrasilio go go go. And here's the deal, none of you know if that's right. None of you. I may have just totally made that up. But here's the English translation, which is also on the town sign, if you wanted to know. It's St. Mary's Church in the hollow of White Hazel near a rapid whirlpool in the church of St. Cecilio near the Red Cape. <laughs> and you all thought Austin was creative, right? <laughs> this is the actual name of the town that we were five minutes from. Okay, uh, that's the end of the slides. Why am I telling you this? It's a great question. I don't know if I have a good answer, but I'm gonna to try to give you an answer. Because we had a destination we were going and I was supposed to navigate and I had no idea how to get there. I had no idea how to pronounce it. I typed it into Google Maps. Google Maps tried to take us to Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Apparently Google doesn't speak Welsh either. But what saved us in the end was the car that we were driving in turns out had a GPS system. And it took me an hour and a half to type this in to make sure that I had gotten the address right, but I turned it into the GPS system. And you know those times when you're praying, like really praying? It's like, Jesus, please let this GPS system speak Welsh. Please, please let it speak Welsh and have this not take us to Czechoslovakia or somewhere else. And typed it in and you hit the go button and all of a sudden it came up and the GPS system speaks Welsh. It's a three hour drive, taking us exactly where we're supposed to go. It's like, oh yeah, I know where that is. And it just took us right there. And so it was this amazing relief. My job as navigator completely changed from confused and going, I don't know where to go and I don't know how to pronounce any of this to a place that all my job was was to watch the GPS system and annoy my wife who was driving by going, two miles, you need to turn left. After the GPS system had already said it. And then it's like, mile and a half, you turn left. I'm like, Beth, in a mile and a half, we have to turn left. In a mile, you turn left. 500 feet, 400 feet. Beth's like, would you stop talking? 200 feet, you have to take a left. And then we're gonna take a left. Like, I was so nervous that we just did, it's like if the GPS system said go right, we went right. If it said go left, we went left. And after a three hour drive, it got us to this beautiful location of the big house on the road of Eisteddfa in Gwyneth. 
And I wonder how similar that is to the spiritual journey that all of us are on. Because it is no mystery the destination that God wants to take us. It is no mystery the destination that God wants to take you. It is no mystery that God, the destination God wants to take your family or your marriage or your friendships or your community. Jesus is very clear in the scriptures about the destination of where we're going. He says that he has called us to be people who have life who have joy, who have purpose. He is called, as he says, to have life and life abundant. It is no mystery, the destination of where we're supposed to go, but I think a lot of us feel like we're navigating and trying to navigate ourselves and our marriages and our families and our friendships without being able to pronounce the places we're going and having no idea how to get there. It's just the destination is clear, and what we need is someone to say, turn left, go right, this is how you get there. And that is the design of this series, Formed, to serve as our collective GPS. So that not only is the destination of where God wants to take us clear, but it is also clear and we are united in how to get there. Does that make sense? And this will all be formed, and this is guiding so much of this year and even coming years, through one scripture passage, a glimpse into Jesus' life from Luke chapter six that we're gonna bring up here now, verses 12 through 19. And this is gonna be so important to all of us as we go forward. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would guide us on this path that you have called us to go on. Give us clarity and unity of the steps ahead. We pray for this in your name. Amen. So in this passage that will be guiding us, we see three distinct things that Jesus does. Three behaviors that aren't just captured in this one passage, but you're going to see in the New Testament and in the scriptures over and over and over again of how Jesus conducts himself and conducts his life. And what we are called to do as disciples is to be followers, imitators of Jesus. That's what a disciple means. We are called to imitate it. So this glimpse into how he organizes and spends his day is something we have to pay, pay really close attention to. The first thing that we see in the opening verses is that he begins by going off in prayer. Then he spends time with people and then they go out to serve. And so the words that we are going to be using here at Covenant to guide us in this path forward is that all of us need patterns in our life of solitude. That's the first one. Secondly, that all of us need patterns in our life of community. And third, that all of us need patterns in our life of service. Solitude, community, and service are the three behaviors we see that are guiding Jesus on this day and throughout his ministry and that we need to be asking ourselves, does this look like our life as well? 
It starts with solitude. That's the first thing Jesus does. He doesn't start with a committee or a strategic plan or a strategic planning team. Not that any of those is bad. But the first way that Jesus begins this part of his ministry is by going up on a mountain and praying. Praying alone. I say this confessionally, but this is my fourth fall of programming year going into here at Covenant. And if I have looked back on these three things, far and away of these three patterns, solitude is the one that I know we have emphasized the least. It is the one that we have spent the least amount of time on. And that may be partly because of me, and that may be partly because of the, the DNA of this community and the things that we gravitate to, but we have done so to our detriment. And we have to change. We see that Jesus' first thing is to go on this mountain and pray. And when we're not certain how prayer works, our prayers start sounding a lot like Santa Claus lists, right? We just start talking at God a lot in prayer. And we don't really know. So it's like, I need this, and my marriage needs this, and my kids need this, and the world needs this, and our city needs this, and our schools need this. And so this is just the stuff I'm praying to you. That that's prayer. Now, friends, to be certain, when we pray, God wants to know what's on our hearts. It's not wrong to speak to God about what we desire for ourselves and those whom we love and the world around us. But let me tell you something. I would imagine that Jesus, when he prayed all night on this mountain, didn't just have a night of giving running commentary to God of what he needs or what the world needs. Prayer is something more than that. What I believe and what I'm being shaped and formed into learning myself and in my own life is that prayer is a lot more about listening than speaking. It's a lot more about receiving than offering. And that before Jesus launches into his ministry, he, as the psalmist writes, I believe, gets still and knows God. Listens, is directed by God. And in our smartphone, crazy, busy world, we have to find ways of embracing this behavior and this pattern ourselves of what does it mean to be still and know? Because if we don't do that, something vital is lacking that will prevent us from abundance, from knowing and experiencing the love of God. And so we here are looking at ways and have planned ways to invite us as a community to start walking into these practices. For example, one of the things that you're going to see and you might have heard about outside today or or learned a little bit more about is the first Saturday in December, we are going to be leading a half-day silent retreat that will be open for this community. Many of you may not have done, participated in a silent retreat before. It can be an unbelievable experience, and we are going to invite you to spend a number of hours just in silence. We will help you uh, guide that process. We're going to gather together in a a certain location where that's going to happen. Or maybe you don't want to wait till the first Saturday in December. Maybe it's something that we need to start doing sooner, and we don't know if we can find half a day. So starting today, you can subscribe to receive daily scripture readings online so that when you have three minutes in the midst of your busy day, you don't go on Facebook to see what's going on, but we find times to be still and know. It's about choosing new patterns and behaviors of how we spend our life. That's going to be number one, solitude. We're going to start there. But Jesus, we realize in this passage, he doesn't just stay on the mountain having these kind of warm, fuzzy moments with God and just sort of remaining up there and having kind of his his great spiritual time. But it moves him and propels him into further action. He goes down the mountain, it says, to this level place where a crowd is gathered and he calls out disciples and then the 12 apostles. Here in Luke, he names them and calls them out for the first time. That we as well need people that we are journeying with in community. There is no such thing as a spiritual lone ranger. You are just compromising your ability to live abundantly when we don't live in community. 
And when we talk about this kind of community, we want to be really clear. This doesn't mean do you have people to watch the UT game with or uh, go to a concert with or um, you know, work out at the gym at or whatever it is you do. None of those things are bad. I'm not saying any of them are bad, but this is not that. These are the people with whom you are journeying intentionally towards Jesus. These are the people that know you and know your marriage and know your friendship. They know how to pray for you. They know how to step in whom you can turn to when things are difficult or when you have anxiety or when disappointment or hurt comes. And they're the people who celebrate with you in great times of joy. All of us need this. And so there are opportunities now for small groups, for Bible studies, where we can begin having our lives intentionally intersect with each other. And we must make time to walk in these patterns and in these ways so that we come alive. We only thrive in community. And lastly, we see in this passage that then Jesus doesn't just stay with his friends. He doesn't stay on the mountaintop, but in the end, it sends them out into acts of service. They go out into the crowd that is there that has needs and has hurts, and they work to bring healing, to cure them. Tim Keller talks about this, that when he says that when you look at the miracle stories of Jesus in the Gospels, that God and Jesus, that Jesus isn't just showing off his power. That if you look at the miracles of Jesus, and think about this, think about the ones that you can know off the top of your head, that these are stories of healing, where Jesus is restoring creation, Keller says, to the way that it was meant to be in the beginning and giving a foretaste of the kingdom of God when there will be no more sickness and no more tears and no more disease and no more loneliness and no more mourning. No more death. Jesus didn't create, and God didn't create in the beginning for blindness, for example. So Jesus isn't just showing off his power, but he restores sight to the blind to say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what creation was and what it shall be again. And we likewise must step boldly to places where we feel and see hurting. And it can't just be in our own little ecosystem, our own little nuclear family. We have to move beyond that out into the city and beyond that out into the world. The abundant life isn't just about receiving and receiving and receiving and receiving. We have to be contributors as well as consumers. God is calling us and sending us out. And ironically, unless we serve, we will not ultimately have that which we were designed and created for, abundance. I was reminded of this recently when I was in a conversation with one of the opportunities, a person who participated in one of the service opportunities here, our annual mission trip to Belize, the high school ministry leads. I was talking to a parent who went and was talking with um, him about what that experience was like looking back a few months later. And he's like, you know, to be honest with you, I really wasn't all that excited when I first heard about the idea of let's go spend spring break in Belize. Let me take vacation time from work. Are we gonna go to the beach? Nope. Are we gonna go to Disney World? Nope. We're gonna go to Belize. No air conditioning and serving. It's like, is that what I wanna spend my, our money on? Is that in our budget? Is that what I wanna spend my vacation time on? I'd rather kind of have something different than that. He said, you know, looking back three months later, most people probably can look at photos of their spring break and they have good memories maybe of what happened, and that's important. But he said, what I experienced there changed me forever. It was in giving and serving that my heart was transformed by getting outside of my own orbit for a little while and working in a place where there was need. And what I realized was the need was just as great in myself. 
this is the pattern. These are the behaviors that all of us must have that we are going to organize ourselves around this year. Solitude, community, and service. Because we as a church want to be crystal clear, not just about where we're going, but about how we'll get there. This will be our GPS for the days and weeks and months and years to come. And I look forward to being a participant on this journey with you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would lead and guide us as your people to the journey that we have been called on, that this scripture, that this series can be a launching point for us, for our families, for our church, so that we can come alive, have life and have it abundantly, but that we will also know how we get there. Lead us, guide us, sustain us. May your great work continue. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together.